Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. But as I've been working through these, these passages, it, it's got me reflecting a bit on, on the church, on my hopes and dreams and laments in my experience of church life over, over the years. And, and I've often thought, and perhaps, perhaps you have too, imagine how good it would be if the church actually lived up to its calling of being a beautiful, true taste of God's goodness lived out on earth. I'm sure we've all thought that from time to time. You know, if the church could just stop the bickering and fighting, wouldn't that woo the world to Jesus? Or if the church could just stop being judgmental and get on with loving God, loving one another and loving our neighbour, perhaps we wouldn't find the world hating Christianity so much. But then as I've been working through these passages in chapters 4 and 5, I'm not quite so convinced about that anymore. Because over the last few weeks, we've had this picture painted of the church at its best in Acts chapter 2. You, you might remember the John McLean spoke last week about that beautiful finish to the end of chapter 2 of God's new people living together in togetherness, thanksgiving, generosity, love, surrounded by these miraculous workings of God. And that's what I, and, and I suspect you, have always wished and longed for the church to be like. And yes, as a result, people are captivated and wooed to the beauty of Jesus' family, and this new community begins to flourish in Jerusalem. But what has interested me is that even still, even despite the inarguable delight of this new Jesus community, opposition still arises. Not because the church is bigoted, not because they're bickering and infighting, not because they're greedy and self-seeking, but because they are so radically generous and good. And so, yeah, I think it's right for us to long for the church at its best But if we're longing for the church to be at its best so that opposition would cease, perhaps we'll only be disappointed in this age. So as we look at these passages, what we're going to be focusing on is this opposition that arises to the early church. Just as Jesus' kingdom begins to take root, and just as it begins to disrupt and rock the foundations of Jerusalem, forces and powers rise up to confront it. And some of this opposition is from outside the church, but some of it is from within as well. So won't you uh, join me and as we pray and come to God's Word? Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, come to your Word now and hear of the marvellous ways in which you're at work to protect your people in the story of Acts, this, as you gave birth to your church... 
Lord, uh, may you encourage us to look at how we might respond when opposition arises from both outside and within, and to rely upon your protective goodness in such times. Amen. So if you've got the, your, a Bible with you, it might be helpful to have it open to chapter 4 and 5 as we flick around. And, and first of all, we're going to look at that opposition that comes from outside and then opposition from inside the church. So it's important to note that this external opposition that the disciples begin to face, that the early church begins to face, it's been building up for weeks. It's a bit like a when you prepare a bonfire and over months you add more and more wood to the pile until that moment when you ignite the fire into a roaring blaze. But the moment that actually ignites the fire of opposition in Jerusalem is when Peter and John heal a well-known lame man and then proclaim the gospel in the temple courts. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. I encourage you to go back and read over chapter 3. But all the events we read about a moment ago follow on from that healing, that story of healing. And so it's in response to this commotion in the temple courts that the priests, the temple guard and the Sadducees come over to investigate. But they're not just casual observers, merely curious. It says they're deeply disturbed. And that probably means they were angry, even irate over what is happening. Why? What's got them so riled up? Well, verse 2 of chapter 4 says, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So, the, the first problem for the religious leaders that, was that these unschooled fishermen were stepping onto their turf and acting like priests or teachers of the law. Here were these ordinary, uncouth peasants drawing the crowds. These these religious leaders, they controlled religion in Jerusalem. They were the ones who said what you could and couldn't do, what was true and what was not. They were the ones who told people what was allowed to happen inside the temple courts. What the disciples were doing was a direct challenge to their pride and with with the crowd that they were drawing, also a challenge to their power. But the second problem for the religious leaders was that Peter and John were claiming that in Jesus, the dead would be raised. And for the Sadducees particularly, who were a group of the religious leaders, the most powerful at the time, this was deeply offensive because they didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead. So in their eyes, not only were these unschooled fishermen undermining their authority, they were also undermining their teaching. So as the the picture unfolds, we see the religious authorities act to quell this commotion. They lock Peter and John in prison for the night and, and they just want Peter and John to shut up. They tell them in futility, just don't mention the name of Jesus. They don't mention the healing, they just say, don't mention the name of Jesus. But despite this opposition, the early church continued to grow. 
people from outlying towns began to bring their sick to the apostles to be healed. Word about the continuing power of Jesus began to spread out from Jerusalem and for these religious leaders, things were starting to get out of hand. So then in chapter 5, we read that they again arrest the apostles and put them in jail, trying just to work out what to do with them all. And it says that the religious leaders were filled with jealousy. They wanted their names on the people's lips, not the names of these upstart apostles, and especially not the name of Jesus, who they had killed. What I find interesting in all of this is that the reason this opposition arises is out of an act of beautiful, generous goodness. A lame man who has been lame, it it would seem, for about 40 years, never allowed in the temple, known by everyone, suddenly is able to dance and leap and praise God as he goes in the temple courts. It's a beautiful story. But it's the reason why this opposition begins. But if the opposition from outside the church is a concern, it's perhaps the opposition from within the church in these passages that's most confronting for us. In uh, chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, we get this disturbing story of Ananias and Sapphira who after they've sold a field, lie about the money they give to the church and secretly hold some back. And as a result, they're immediately both struck down dead. What are we meant to make of a story like that? I heard mutters after that story finished. How how did you respond? What was your gut response to hearing that story? My first response has always been, whenever I hear that, wow, that seems harsh, to say the the very least. And it's not a story that we see repeated elsewhere in Acts or the New Testament, where God acts so swiftly and absolutely in judgment of individuals. I can't think of other stories quite like this in the New Testament. That should give us pause, I think, and make us wonder... Perhaps there's something particularly unique and important about this moment. Maybe there's more going on here than at first glance. And I think the key verse in this section is in verse 3 of chapter 5, where where Peter says, listen to what Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? One of the things that we've been seeing in the first few chapters of Acts is that the defining characteristic of this new church is that Jesus' people are filled with the Holy Spirit. But here Peter describes Ananias, rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit, as being filled by Satan, which is a word that means the enemy, so the enemy of God and his people. And this word filled here is exactly the same word that's used to describe the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost takes place. It's a word that means full to the brim, with no room for anything else. 
And so Peter's saying to him, Ananias, your heart is so full to the brim with the self-seeking, poisoned fruit of evil that there's no room for anything else. But why such an extreme, or at least to my eyes, an extreme response of judgment that Ananias and Sapphira would lose their lives? I mean, it's not, this isn't the last time we're going to see people in the church lying or acting in greedy ways, or acting in ways that I think to our eyes we would say is far worse than what takes place here. And yet they aren't struck down, thankfully, because if that was the pattern of how God works, there wouldn't be many of us here, I suspect. (laughs) I, I think part of the answer, and it's only part of the answer, comes by looking at the wider context. This is a highly significant moment for Jesus' church. Though flourishing, this Jesus community is small and fragile. The slightest fracture or division or sign of falsehood in the family could threaten its future. And there's this sense in Peter's language that Satan, the the enemy of God is threatened by this new community and is trying to get a foothold by worming his way into the heart of the church to ravage it and rip it apart. This is a troubling story and it's never going to sit easy with us all. But Luke, the author, I believe, wants us to see this actually as an act of God protecting his church from evil worming its way into the church. We're meant to see that at this moment of infancy, the stakes are high. There's warfare taking place, opposition arising from all sides, and it will take more than just good deeds to see the church through these trials. They will need the miraculous, protective hand of God to guide them and sustain them. And throughout these chapters in Acts... In fact, throughout the book of Acts, this is one of the defining features. God intervening to protect his people when opposition arises. In chapter 4, just in our passages today, the Holy Spirit fills his people with courage and boldness to continue witnessing to the goodness of Jesus when our normal human nature would cower in fear, as Ian was praying earlier. We see God protect his church from evil gaining a foothold in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He opens the prison doors so that the apostles can go and continue proclaiming the good news in Jerusalem and the Spirit acts to confound the religious leaders so they don't know what to do. And through it all, despite the opposition, God continues to draw more and more people to himself and somehow in ways that do not make sense to human eyes, the church continues to grow. It might be a bit strange to think in this way, but John McLean spoke a little bit about this last week too, but what we're looking at in these chapters of Acts is our birthday. Even though we weren't there, this is the birthday of this family. Without these events taking place, We aren't a family. We would not be gathered together. 
It's our birthday. And there's something unique about days of birth. When we're born, there's a fragility and weakness. Special attention is needed in very intentional ways to protect the life of a newborn child. In some ways, I think we're meant to see these stories in Acts as God protecting with special attentive care the life of his newborn child. Does God continue to protect his children today? Of course he does. But we shouldn't be too quick to assume that all the stories of God's miraculous workings in Acts are promises of how he will act at all times and always towards us. Yet, Perhaps the birth of the church is not just a one-off event. Perhaps God is at work giving birth to his church in different times and places, even around our world today. Perhaps Acts describes a pattern of what God does whenever he gives birth to his church. As I've been reading stories about the church in China... I can't help but see some amazing similarities with these stories in the book of Acts. Troubling and intentional persecution. Authority is seeking to control religion and imprison those they can't control. Miraculous workings of God to protect his church from the opposition that they're facing. The astounding spread of the gospel when powers and forces are intent on stopping it. It's all quite troubling, but also somehow very exciting as well. But these passages too, they they raise questions for us, even here in Springwood and and Winmalee. Do we experience opposition? Certainly not in the same ways as the early church, but I think we would mostly agree that Christianity is, is commonly viewed more and more as a public menace in our society. It certainly feels that way. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. The early church, the church at its best, was also viewed as a public menace. But the question we need to ask is, if we're viewed this way as a public menace, why is it that we're viewed this way? Because it's one thing for the church to be a public menace for doing good, but quite another if we're a public menace due to doing evil in the name of Jesus. And sadly, throughout history, that's too often been the case. At times, rather than the world knowing that we're Christians by our love, we have been known for our hate. And you only need to look at the stories of the Crusades to see that in action. I wonder, how does our town, how does our neighbourhood view this church here? I'm sure that some, perhaps many, view us as a public menace. I think generally we have a pretty good reputation, but I'm, I'm sure that's not always the case. And maybe we need to learn to be okay with that. But will we be viewed this way because of our extravagant generosity and goodness that challenges the idols and powers of our society or because of some other ugly 
self-seeking, turf-protecting motive. I was trying to think through an example of what that, what kind of challenges we might face in that kind of, kind of space. And um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, this just came up while I was preparing this. Uh, out in one of the pot plants outside the stone building, someone kindly dropped this flag and placed it in one of the pot plants outside the stone building. Now, I don't know why, who did that, or what the motivation was behind doing this. I suspect that it was making a statement of some, some kind. I suspect that's what it was about. What do we do about that? Do we, do we shrug our shoulders and carry on? Do we get angry? Do we put up security cameras or make a fuss about it all? You know what, part of me was hoping that more rainbows would start appearing in our gardens. Why? Because then we could put up, I was daydreaming about this, we could put up a sign saying something like this. Thank you to the person who keeps putting rainbow flags in our garden. We love rainbows too. They remind us of God's faithfulness and his promises to bring wars, tears and hatred to an end. Next time you drop in a rainbow flag, come in and have a chat. We'd love to meet you. Isn't that kind of response going to achieve far more than sticking up security cameras, protecting our turf or getting angry? But perhaps more than the opposition that we face from without, we need to have our eyes open to the opposition that might come from within too. As I reflect on how God's been at work in our churches over the last eight years, I am grateful for so much. We've seen God's hand of protection and love, healing, restoring and bringing forth new life. And these church communities are ones that by and large are characterised by love for God, I think, by love for God, love for one another and love for our neighbour. And I suspect that Satan, the enemy of God and his people, is not very happy about that. Perhaps we need to be wary of how greed, selfishness, bickering and infighting, anger and hate can so easily worm their way into the heart of a church family. Is there the danger that idols in our hearts could cause us to act in ways that divide and ravage this church family? A good question to ask, I think, is when we're angry or frustrated, and we will be, is that caused by a desire to see us being a scandalously generous and good people who point to Jesus, or because of some idol or fixation on something that's less important? Are we willing to forgive and seek healing and restoration when conflict arises or let it fester? It's amazing how often I've heard of good being unravelled because churches start fighting over worship style or music or pews or some other trivial matter. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes these sorts of infighting are examples of evil trying to gain a foothold. 
But in all of this, there is the great comfort in all of these passages, is it's this great comfort of knowing that God is at work protecting His church. God is jealously protective of His church with an intense fatherly love. And I think it's right to think that, that, that often, when the church is most fragile, God's protective strength is seen in beautiful ways. And there's also an encouragement here for us to prayerfully turn to God and ask for His protection upon this church family, now and into the future. That He'd protect us from the forces trying to worm their way into our hearts and break us apart. And that we would pray that we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that there would be no room for anything else. John Dixon, in his book, Bullies and Saints, some of you might have read it, he writes this, Christ wrote a beautiful, a beautiful tune, which the church has often performed well and often badly, but the melody was never completely drowned out. Sometimes it became a symphony. How about we pray now that God would help our churches play that beautiful tune and allow that symphony to be heard now and into the future. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love your church. Thank you that these stories we're reading about are the stories of our birthday. That we only exist here together today because of what we're reading about and because you protected your church through these trials and opposition. And that you've protected your church throughout history and redeemed us when we've messed it up badly. Lord God, we ask for your protection. We ask that you would help us to shine your light to the world, that you would help us to know what it looks like to speak to our world with scandalous goodness and grace, even if that means opposition at times, may it be for our scandalous goodness and grace. Lord, may you protect us from the forces that try to worm their way into these, this church community and rip us apart. We are thankful that the work of your spirit is stronger than that. And so we turn to you, we rely upon you, and we pray for your continued protection and guidance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.